The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to the software edition of the AV Podcast. Coming up, we've got the news with Seth Gecko. Chris Macanini reviews Forbidden Planet Ultimate Edition on Region 1 DVD. Simon Crush reviews Monster House on Region 2 DVD. And we continue our roundtable discussion on computer animation with Peter Komninos from the National Centre of Computer Animation at Bournemouth University. From AV Play, it's this week's DVD and HD news and reviews. So it's time for this week's DVD and high definition news. And first up is Seth Gecko. Well, this week, Warner Home Video have announced the Region 2 release of Lady in the Water um, by M. Night Shyamalan. Now, it's essentially the same as the Region 1 release, but we're getting it on the 15th of January 2007. It's going to have a £19.99 price tag. You're going to get Dolby Digital 5.1 audio soundtrack, the Lady in the Water bedtime story featurette, the six-part Reflections of Lady in the Water featurette, as well as the auditions, gag reel and deleted scenes. If you're a big fan of M. Night Shyamalan, this is one to pick up in January. And staying with Region 2 news, Pathé Distribution Limited has announced the release of Severance on the 8th of January 2007, priced at £17.99. This screwball horror comedy is set in the woods of Eastern Europe, where seven colleagues literally find themselves faced with the chop when their corporate weekend is sabotaged by some deadly enemies. The disc will feature a 235-1 anamorphic transfer and the usual Dolby Digital 5.1 soundtrack. Also on the disc are deleted scenes, making-ofs, outtakes, easter eggs and the UK theatrical trailer. Staying with Region 2 DVD, Universal Pictures have announced the release of Crank for the 26th of December, again at £19.99. This movie stars Jason Statham as a professional assassin who's been poisoned by his enemies can only stay alive by keeping his adrenaline flowing sounds very cliched. Unfortunately, the disc is virtually bare bones. You're going to get the anamorphic widescreen presentation with the obligatory Dolby Digital 5.1 soundtrack, and the trailer is the only optional extra. And we seem to be very Region 2 heavy on the news this week, and that's still the case, because staying with Universal Pictures, they've announced American Pie Presents The Naked Mile. This is the second cash-in on the American Pie franchise and is released on the 4th of December, priced at £17.99. When Eric Stifler realises that he's the only Stifler family member who might graduate from high school as a virgin, he decides to live up to his legacy. The only actor who returns from the original American Pie franchise is Eugene Levy as Jim's dad. This straight-to-video and DVD spin-off comes to DVD as a bare-bones release, presented in one 778 anamorphic widescreen with an English 5.1 soundtrack. HD DVD fans out there will be looking forward to The Mummy Returns on January the 16th and The Sting also out on January the 16th. The Mummy Returns will have a Dolby Digital Plus 5.1 soundtrack, a commentary track, the Making of the Mummy Returns featurette and various other extras. The Sting will also have a Dolby Digital Plus 2.0 soundtrack, the Art of the Sting retrospective, Making a Masterpiece, The Legacy and Production Notes. And staying with HD DVD, the Weinstein Company have announced three titles coming out on December the 19th. No details on the extras or specifications as yet, but look for Scary Movie 4, Derailed and The Matador, all on December the 19th. And as if three versions weren't enough, Fox and MGM Home Entertainment have announced another two-disc collector's edition of The Silence of the Lambs on Region 1 DVD this January 30th. This release will come a week before the prequel, Hannibal Rising, hits theatres on February the 7th. Extras will include Inside the Labyrinth, making of documentary, a two-part page-to-screen documentary, as well as scoring the silence featurette, the original 1991 making of featurette, 22 deleted scenes, outtakes, TV spots and trailers. And finally, Sony have announced two new releases on Blu-ray for January 2007. First up is Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. 
It will come in with a 235-1 to 1080p transfer and a Cantonese PCM 5.1 soundtrack, as well as extras including a commentary with Ang Lee and James Seamus, a conversation with Michelle Yeoh and a feature entitled Unleashing the Dragon. Also, on January the 2nd, on DVD and Blu-ray, The Covenant will be released. Specifications on this are sketchy at the moment, but expect a 235 to 1 ratio and a Dolby Digital 5.1 soundtrack, as well as a director's commentary and behind-the-scenes featurette. And that's your DVD and high-definition news for this week. The world's longest-lasting batteries from Energizer. Energizer Ultimate Lithium take up to 630 photos in digital cameras, compared to just 90 with ordinary alkaline batteries. Perfect for MP3 players. Ultimate Lithium lasts up to five and a half hours longer and are ideal for when you're on the move. Chances are you're going to need batteries again this Christmas. Choose Energizer Ultimate Lithium. Energizer. It's what's inside that counts. For the biggest and best DVD and HD news and reviews, visit avplay.com. This week's DVD Reviews. Well, this this week I've had the chance to look at um, one of my favourite movies um, from the 1950s, um, a nostalgic sci-fi classic, Forbidden Planet, the one that brought Robbie the Robot to um, international fame and um, shaped a lot of sci-fi to follow. It's quite well known that it's a, a, way, a reworking of Shakespeare's The, the Tempest. Instead of like a magical island, we now have a, a far-off distant planet set way into the future. An ancient civilization has been wiped out, but the remnants of its technology and its um, scientific might and wisdom still lingers on. An Earth scientist, Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon, still lives there. After Earth pioneers had settled on the planet, his daughter lives there too. There's been a disaster there. They are the only two survivors after um, the other pioneers sort of uh, were vaporized or were torn apart by some mysterious presence. And in the intervening years, Earth has wondered what just what's happened to the people out there. So they send out Leslie Nielsen. Yes, that's Leslie Nielsen from Naked Gun, Police Squad, and Airplane. One of his earlier straight roles. He's the Starship Commander J.J. Adams. He arrives there with his steel-jawed, confident crew and discover that they're not entirely wanted. Despite falling in love with the lovely Alta Alta, who is um, Water Pigeon's daughter in the movie, played by a luscious Anne Francis, Morbius, his old, his jealousies and rage at uh, his daughter, falling in love with somebody else and wanting to go, wanting to leave his idyllic paradise. His suppressed rage and anger come to the fore, creating what is commonly known as the monster of the id, his own suppressed rage, which is invoked for murder. So the same old saga which destroyed the ancient race, the Krell that lived on the planet, um, is set back in motion again. That's it basically in a nutshell, that's that's the plot, but uh, what a wonderful movie. It's as camp as they come, visually it's absolutely totally lush. The star of the show is undoubtedly Robbie the Robot, Dr. Morbius' servant, something he tinkered together after learning a few of the magical wisdom of the ancient Krell civilization, and it's a hulking bubble-headed, ridiculously cumbersome-looking robot, but it's full of personality. Marvin Miller did the uh, the wonderful voice for the for the robot. Obviously, the whole thing was taken off in Lost of, Lost in Space a few years later, with their even more ponderous-looking robot. But the movie itself is an absolute classic. Well, as I say, this is one of my favourite uh, films from the period, and uh, I've waited a long time for a version to come out which was actually worth commenting on. And this one is absolutely fantastic. It's a it's a double disker. We have the movie on one on one disc. Sadly, no commentary track, but it's a gloriously restored print. If anyone got the um, the recent deluxe edition of Wizard of Oz and you saw the clean up the restoration job that was that was made on that, you know they'll know what they let themselves in for here. MGM stuff out of the archives, cleaned up. It's a brand spanking glorious print. The colours are sharp. The image is. It's very clear, detail in the background which you'd never seen before. It's really well highlighted. It's a marvellous, marvellous transfer. The sound's been remixed into 5.1, Dolby Digital 5.1. And um, the purists out there may say, hang on, I'm not having that, it should be in mono. And ordinarily I would have agreed, but I'm afraid I like this 5.1. You've only got the option for 5.1 on this set, by the way. 
and uh, although it's not particularly active you know in the rear speakers there is ambience there which really helps the movie builds up atmosphere dialogue is tracked around the speakers and there's a lot more presence and weight to the effects the weird and freaky electronic soundtrack which totally influenced John Carpenter who appears in some of the documentaries on disc 2 comes through really well that echoes around the, the rear speakers so you are getting quite a good presence there on the audio side of things the documentaries you have three documentaries one of which is primarily about the films of the 50s the sci-fi boom of the 50s it covers Forbidden Planet it covers my favorite movie uh, The Thing from Another World and a few of the other classics um, it's in that, it's got a, a few good pieces in it James Cameron's in there Ridley Scott's in there Joe Dante is there you have another documentary which is uh, actually about the making of Forbidden Planet it's only about 26 minutes long but it packs packs quite a lot of information in there it's basically a lot of film directors and a few of the stars Leslie Nielsen's in there Anne Francis is in there God knows how old she is now but she's still looking really fine which is nice to see it's mainly a bit of a fan fest really but it's still a nice piece um, we have another one which is brief documentary about Robbie the Robot again this could go a lot more in depth but it, it plays it mainly for fun and it's nice and nostalgic if you plump for the ultimate edition uh, which comes in perhaps one of the biggest tin boxes that I've ever seen for a DVD release you, uh, you not only get the double disc version of the movie you have a nice little very small but beautiful miniature of Robbie the Robot slightly articulated but if you get it don't try too hard to move those limbs because you might end up snapping it but it's very nice indeed plus you get a set of lobby cards for Forbidden Planet and for the Invisible Boy lovely and a, a great addition as I say to round it off this is one of, this is one of sci-fi's greatest masterpieces it's a great film thoroughly entertaining you can get it as um, a standard DVD or you can get it as an HD DVD and whichever one you plump for you know you're not gonna go far wrong with it my advice, go for the Ultimate Edition. The lobby cards are wonderful, plus you get the little figure, Robbie the Robot. You can't go wrong. Great film. Thoroughly recommended. A whole package overall, 10 out of 10. I loved it. This week's DVD Reviews. The subject of this week's review is Monster House, a film that has the uncanny ability to sum up its plots in the title of the film, Monster House. Of course, in, in more detail, the film is about a house that becomes possessed and wants to try and eat anyone who comes within its uh, circle of its garden. The film follows the adventures of, of the three children, DJ, his best friend Chowder, and a little girl called Jenny, whom they meet on their adventures. They try and stop the house from eating anyone who comes within a circle of its garden due to it being Halloween and many of the trick-or-treaters who have come up and they want to save them. The film I found was really quite dark. Um, it didn't really know in which direction it wanted to go. Um, in the first few minutes of the film you get this really quite grotesque moment. The owner of the monster house, um, a Mr. Nebercracker, is um, he leaps out of his house and screams murder at this poor unfortunate child who's happened to land on his front lawn. He then picks up a bike and throws it away. Now I, I found this really almost traumatic watching it myself. My two boys were watching it, actually laughed and found it quite funny. Um, as the film progressed I warmed to it much more. When they hatched their plot to stop the house eating more people, I found the film became much more adventurous. The, the, the horror aspect was toned down in, into a more peril type adventure story. This means that the film was easier to watch. It meant that the, my, my kids watched it became much more enthusiastic about it. The film utilises a fairly new style of animation, um, something called performance capture. It's the same sort of thing that Peter Jackson used uh, with Gollum and Kong. They record the live actors in a motion capture suit with dots all over their face so they can actually capture facial expressions. But more than that, they capture the sound as well and it's from this raw data that they input it into the computer and then they then animate. So it's pretty unique for, for an entire film to be made off of this particular process. It, it looks good, it does look good. This is of course enhanced by the, by the picture and sound. 
The picture is one of the best I've seen on DVD in, in a long, long time. Colours are fantastic. They're bold, they're shiny, they shine off the screen. Reds, blues, greens, they're all theirs. The brightness and contrast give it excellent blacks. It's a stunning, stunning picture. I couldn't find any fault with um, edge enhancement nor um, any compression artifacts. This is, of course, backed up by the uh, 5.1 English sound. Completely um, surround sound, fully encompassing, excellent bass. Tonally, the dialogue was it sounded perfectly natural. Um, Extra-wise, um, I found it a little bit light. The uh, the commentary is recorded by about five or six different people, who none of whom name themselves, and they were none of, not in the same room when it was done. So it's all pieced together. Um, makes makes it quite difficult to follow. The information that's given is rather static and quite dull. Um, I found it quite a difficult commentary to listen to, and I wouldn't really recommend it to anyone else. There's uh, a load of featurettes that uh, you can play. Or there's about seven featurettes that you can hit play or watch them all together. They run for about 20-25 minutes in total and cover various aspects of the making of the film. Pretty light on content but an easy one watch feature. Other extras would be um, evolution of a scene in which they go into the various stages that they use to create the final frame. Six stages right through from initial concept art, storyboarding, the motion capture etc. Um, and then you've got concept art of the house, which is just thousands and thousands of pictures. Too many that I couldn't actually get through them all. In the end then, um, I found Monster House, after my initial reservations of thinking, oh my god, this is really quite too much, even for, even, even for kids, I ended up enjoying it. And my kids found it even more exciting. In fact, as soon as it finished, it went on again. And during my second viewing, I actually warmed to it even more. So um, my my score for an, of an overall score for this DVD was seven. The biggest news and the best best reviews. Best reviews. Hard, tiring work. You're listening to the AV podcast. Many of our listeners will be aware of the HD format war about to hit UK shores in the next few weeks. Well, to combat some of the misinformation that surrounds the upcoming formats, Guildford-based PJ Hi-Fi will be hosting two special HD DVD insider chats for AV Forum's members on Wednesday the 20th of December. The AV podcast will be on hand during both sessions and will be reporting on the outcome for all those who can't attend on the day, including interviews with the organisers and attendees. With special guests from Microsoft and a chance to see the format in one of the UK's best demo rooms, tickets for these sessions are likely to go fast. So keep an eye on our HD DVD forums for more details as they're posted. You're listening to the AV Podcast. Oh, worth it. Totally worth it. This week's Roundtable Discussion, hosted by Phil Hinton. This week's Roundtable Discussion is a little bit special as we are joined by our special guest, Peter Komninos, from the National Centre of Computer Animation at Bournemouth University. Also on the panel this week are Seth Gecko and Chris Macanini. So, Peter, can you just start off by giving us a little bit about your history, please? Okay. Uh, well, I'm a, um, an academic. I have been uh, working in computer animation for the past uh, 25 years. I originally started when I was a kid. I wanted to be a movie director. Unfortunately, it didn't happen, so I ended up studying computer science, which I ended up loving. And very quickly in my career, I discovered I could make pictures with a computer. So I won a prize when I was in my second year of college, and that made it, basically. I decided that I'm going to spend the rest of my life making pictures with a computer. <laughs> so that's how it started. Um, finished my degree, and then um, I decided to stay on and do a PhD, uh, and that ended up being a P one of the first PhDs in the country in uh, 3D computer animation. So it sort of started like that. As I was doing my PhD, I started working with artists. Uh, so I discovered that everything I wanted to do was collaborate with artists in effect, you know, write computer programs so that they can use them and produce some art. And this initially was static and then eventually became animated. So I started developing my own animation systems, and uh, back in the 1980s, I uh, met a sculptor who was working in another uh, university department, in the design department, and we started working together. We did some animations for our local television station. We did some in, um, uh, indent sequences, and we also did some uh, inserts for various programs. And it sort of started like that. We started working with interior designers, with industrial designers, with architects. And uh, we 
got into production, and about 1987, uh, we moved uh, down south. We came to uh, Bournemouth uh, to set up the uh, National Center for Computer Animation. Uh, so we started first by um, introducing a master's course in, at the university, and then eventually we started a bachelor's course, and uh, we've been at it since um, 1989. We've been producing uh, graduates. Uh, a lot of these people have uh, ended up occupying important positions in industry, in our production industry, special effects industry, and also the animation industry, and uh, they usually... Um, remember where they came from and uh, they know what they're getting if they're getting students from our university so we tend to be pretty popular um, about 40 percent of our students also go into the games industry and because the underlying technology between computer animation and games is pretty similar it's just that the added uh, thing you have to do in games is to, to, to produce the graphics in real time and that's becoming really possible now with the latest developments in hardware. You get some amazing pictures which we never dream of a few years mm. back. But, you know, the whole philosophy of the center has been this marriage, the amalgam, if you want, of art and science. And uh, it's populated by um, a group of artists and scientists working together, uh, educating students, producing research. Uh, we're pretty good at research. Uh, I don't know if you know that the government sort of measures the research of universities every four or five years. In the last uh, round, we got five out of five, which means the highest grade in computer animation in the country. And um, because of that, we're getting loads of money to do research. <laughs> so we do even more. Uh, at what point did Hollywood come calling for your particular oh, skills? Um, well, uh, actually, um, what happened is uh, about 94 uh, some of our graduates started uh, being employed by American companies, uh, companies like Industrial Light and Magic, the Lucasfilms, and then they started going to places like Pixar and uh, Digital Domain, the people uh, uh, who did the Titanic graphics, and um, more recently they have moved into Sony Imageworks. Uh, the reason why that happens is m most kids would get a job in London uh, for a couple of years, and then... Uh, what happens every so often, American companies, because they don't produce enough people in America, they would come to London, which is the second biggest uh, computer graphics center in the world, if you want, and they would just shake their big um, checkbook and employ people. Mm. Uh, so a lot of our graduates end up working in America, and we keep in contact with them. Um, so we more or less know who's doing what. There's, we've got a lot of people working in a company called Weta, the people who did uh, oh, yeah. the, the graphics for Lord of the, Lord Rings. Of the Rings and, and King, King Kong. Kong. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, one of our ex-students worked on the face of King Kong, the animation yeah. of the face of King Kong. And oh, that's we, very good. We've had some ex-students working on Happy Feet, which is coming out soon. But I... I I'm, a, I'm supposed to talk about Monster House and not Happy Feet. I understand that Monster House uses um, motion capture for a lot of, of the graphical work. So can you explain how that works? Okay. Um, actually, it uses two things, motion capture first, and then it uses uh, performance capture. Now, and I'll explain motion capture very quickly, and then I go into performance capture. Okay, motion capture basically is an idea where you can attach um, pointers uh, on a, well, you get a, the actor wearing a black suit, first of all, and then you attach some luminous pointers on the suit, especially at the joints of the character, of the human. Uh, then what you do is you shoot the actor performing a motion with a number of cameras. Then you do some mathematical magic to uh, extract three-dimensional information from the two-dimensional images of the camera, uh, camera's capture. Uh, because when when you have a particular frame of the motion from one particular television camera, all you have is a flat image, and you can't measure the depth. But if you combine a number of these pictures together, you can actually extract three-dimensional information. So you end up knowing where the joints of the character are in space. Then what you do is you take a synthetic character, um, that's computer-generated model, if you want, and you try to insert in that a, a, a motion rig, as it's called. And what that is, is like a skeleton. And you associate the joints of the motion rig with the points, or the pointers, if you want, on the dancing character's um, joints. 
And then you can actually get the synthetic character to perform the same motions that the real character was performing. So that's that's what motion capture is about. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, we, we've seen this kind of thing on uh, the, the makings of, of certain movies and that. And yeah. It all seems very very comical at the time. You know, with, um, <laughs> it is. And someone I'm wearing explaining... a silly black suit and little dots on them. Right. Do you actually oversee this process, or are you? Are you yeah, we actually... actually have a motion capture studio in our university. So you can see some big stars making complete fools of themselves, yeah? <laughs> well, uh, this is. Uh, you'll only see that in Hollywood studios because uh, Hollywood uh, production companies would have their own uh, motion capture studios. Uh, so they wouldn't come to England for that. All right. of this will happen in, in the States. But w what happens occasionally in our place is you get games companies coming and capturing the motions of some characters, and then you can see that on the computer game. So you would use like your own in-house people to perform these particular um, A lot of the time motions. they will bring a dancer. The, the company will bring a dancer. Yeah. I mean, other people who are interested in that is people who want to produce uh, software to help uh, uh, injured athletes, for instance. So they have to understand how their joints work. Okay, so now, now we've done sort of uh, motion capture. Let's see if we can take that and make it into performance capture. Now, for performance capture, basically what you want to do is capture the expressions on the face of a human and then take these and somehow map them onto the face of a computer-generated character. Now, in 3D animation, you don't draw anything. You just create three-dimensional um, descriptions, if you want, of the, the character. So if you're trying to design something like Mickey Mouse, you're going to start with a sphere to make the head, then you're going to add an ellipse to make the nose, and then another ellipse to, ellipsoid to sort of uh, do the nose, and then you have to have some small dishes to make the ears kind of thing, right? Okay, so that's, that's a static model. Then you have to be able to move that so that it uh, expresses facial expressions, if you want. Now, to do that in this particular film, in this, um, well, what ImageWorks have done, is they, they've attached 80 sensors on the face of each character. And they uh, stuck them in the cubicle, which is about uh, 6 meters by 6 meters by 5. And then they asked them to perform an action, uh, and you know, a facial expression like smile, for instance, or screw your, 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 your eyes, or something like that. And they would capture the information that comes in. They do that with 200 cameras at the same time. The reason why they need so many cameras is because in this cubicle, you're allowed to have up to six actors. So um, from particular camera angles, a particular actor or the face of a particular actor could be hidden, if you want, by the body of another actor. So you need as many cameras as possible to be able to extract the three-dimensional information. Then they would design the face of the synthetic character of the, let's say, for instance, in this particular film, DJ or Chowder or Jenny. And then what they're going to do is do what they call a, a facial, um, well, it's, it's like a facial skeleton. It's called a facial rig. What this facial rig is supposed to do is allow the animator to control the motion of the various points on the surface of the face of the synthetic character. Now, in this particular film, they used uh, a theory which is called, well, they used a system of facial expressions which is called the facial action coding system that was developed at Palo Alto back in the 70s. And all they were trying to do at the time was to measure facial expressions and begin to find points by which they could recognize what a facial expression said or, or expressed, if you want. And they broke that, well, they broke all human facial expressions down to what they call action units. And there were 72 of these. So they would divide the face of the human and the top half, and there you would have some muscles that could manipulate the shape of the eyes, make the eyes turn, make the eyelids close and open and the bottom of the face where you would control the lips and the, the chin movement and all that. So n now they have this facial rig which allows them to perform this uh, set of motions, if you want, and they have the data that comes in from the performance capture. They have to associate points from the performance capture data with the points of the facial rig, and then they would, in effect, get this electronic puppet to move in synchrony with the, with the 
performance that they captured in the in the performance capture stage. Now that's pretty difficult operation to do because there's a lot of data there. Some of it is uh, redundant, and uh, you've got to clean it up. You've got to retarget it, as they call it, um, in order to get the puppet to perform realistically, if you want, capturing the original performance. Now there are some realism issues there, which I, I would like to explore, if you want. Yeah, and yeah. You want to do that? Monster House in particular, uh, for me, there's a degree of realism there which um, is leaps and bounds ahead of the likes of, say, Polar Express, which came out last year. Uh, yeah. Which, um, again, very realistic in places, but Monster House has a different kind of aspect to it where the camera seems to move around the characters. There's a particular sequence early on where Child is playing basketball to impress DJ, and the camera moves around him, the movements that he makes right. are very realistic, the ball bounces, hits him in the face, and it's, it's, it's almost, it doesn't have to be animated, it actually seems very, very actually, filmic and realistic. The, the camera motions were not captured, they're, they're, they're computer generated, because yeah. all they do, uh, you know there's 200 cameras I talked about, yeah. all they're doing is they're extracting three-dimensional information, and they're not really interested most of the time in the in the in when the, where the camera is. They're only interested in the three-dimensional um, points in space. Once they have these, they can get the synthetic character to perform, and then they can move their camera, the synthetic camera, anywhere they want. Uh, so that that's the beauty of this system. But you talked about realism. There is a problem in computer graphics and realism. There's some um, a Japanese uh, robotics expert back in the, in the 70s called Masahiro Mori, who actually um, was trying to figure out how to create prosthetic uh, hands for people um, and make them appealing to the public. So what he did is he did, he did some uh, research on how... Um, realism or the increase of realism if you want increases our empathy for something yeah uh, alive or, or or a robot perhaps so what it, if you can think of uh, a graph where the horizontal line is realism starting from zero no realism to full realism and if you can think of another line perpendicular to that going up and down which is empathy the well, common sense would tell you that as we increase the realism, we get more empathy. In other words, we sympathize more with either the robot or the synthetic character. Yeah. However, there is a problem there because this graph sort of rises up slowly as if it is climbing up a mountain. Then it reaches a tip, the top of the mountain, and then there is a very sharp valley following that. Uh, it goes down and it goes below the horizontal axis, so you move into antipathy. And then again, it starts rising very sharply again towards empathy. So this uh, unusual uh, effect of the graph, they, they call the uncanny valley. <laughs> and it, it has to do with the fact that we, uh, th there are patterns in our brain. We, we recognize faces because um, we recognize certain characteristics that faces have. And if they look normal to us, we feel sympathy for them. If they look, um, if, if somehow they have some kind of disability, for instance, somebody has a stroke, uh, half their face will be hanging. And we automatically, instinctively, if you want, feel antipathy for that because we associate uh, that look with illness. Uh, similarly, we feel antipathy towards a corpse or a zombie. And if you look at this valley I was describing, at the bottom of this valley is, what is where the zombies would lie, and the corpse would be slightly higher above the zombie, if you want. It's a very strange sort of balancing act you've got to do, isn't it, really? It is, because uh, the practical effect of this is that the closer you try to get to reality, if you haven't quite reached it, people switch off and say, well, yeah. that doesn't look real. And that's precisely what happened with Polar Express. Uh, yeah, it, be, it became almost too real, didn't it? But in a way, it went too far. It was it, it realistic, became, but yeah. we knew it wasn't. Our brains told us, well, it's not, so it's kind exactly, of freakish. Exactly, yeah. It's a phenomenon which is called corpsing. <laughs> uh, people, were actually, people actually felt that these characters were creepy rather than yeah, feel sympathy right. for them. <laughs> a, a very sort of melancholic um, you know, 
um, sort of sensation watching that movie. Exactly. Which is not, yeah, which mean, is not what you get in Monster House. I, I was which talking is... to um, an animator who worked on Over the Hedge uh, last week, and he said he looked at this movie and his jaw dropped. He didn't know how to react to it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of frightening. It kind of goes back to um, our association with comic book um, yeah, drawings. Yeah, exactly. Even like to the Beano, it's all about the human face and the way the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. I mean, it could be any kind of um, sort of dimensions but so long as we recognize it then we can empathize with it but yeah, the minute you exactly. begin to put that into like sort of a 3d environment I mean, uh, and it begins a, to moves you know yeah. begins to move it, it could be kind of bizarre yeah there's actually a, a, a symmetry with the way art has developed if you want initially people were going after the renaissance people were going closer and closer to realism and then they reached a certain stage uh, and they pulled back from that because What's happening is the, the closer that we're getting to reality and missing it by a little bit, people were becoming too critical. Uh, and they were getting effect, scared by it. <laughs> exactly. It, it appears as though our brain says, well, ooh, I want to discriminate very carefully now. That's not quite real. <laughs> While if you, if you have an abstraction like Donald Duck, that doesn't look like a duck, but you accept it as a duck, right? Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's the clever little balance that can be made. Peter, so, does, it, does this yeah. mean that um, uh, we'll never see realistic um, computer animation, i.e. something that looks completely realistic because we won't accept that? Is that, is, is that the point well, of view? If you follow this idea of the uncanny valley, in order to accept realism, you have to be let's say, 96% realistic. If you can't reach that 96% realism, you better stay below 75. That's the idea. <laughs> so if you look at the, the works that Pixar produces, they're about 75% realistic. They, they, don't, they don't go above that. In other words, there's a gap between about 75% realism and 95% realism. So you have to somehow manage to get very, very close to realism for your brain to say, yeah, okay, that's near enough as damn it, and I believe it. And so that it, happens not just in faces, you know, it happens in other things. Let's say if I was trying to synthetically generate the texture of marble, if it looks almost there, about 96% there, my brain says, yeah, no, no problem, that's marble. Although if you analyzed it um, uh, scientifically, if you want, it wouldn't look like marble. In your brain, a pattern clicked, and it says, yeah, I recognize this as marble. Of course, we are willing to accept things as looking realistic if we're not very familiar with them. So if you're seeing the model of a dinosaur, you don't know what dinosaurs look like, so you accept it. But if you look at a human face, the first thing you, you, you've seen after you were born was your mother's face. So you will know that it looks yeah, wrong. so many terms of reference, yeah. We, we, know, we know it inside out, don't we? Exactly, yeah. And we are programmed to recognize human faces. So... The answer is to your question is they've tried a couple of experiments. There's, there was one, and uh, they were trying to remake the incredible Mr. Limpet in '98. Uh, they gave it up. And about 2000, 2002, Disney was doing an experiment with human faces, and they gave it up. Um, I think it's going to get there, but there are two major problems. The first problem is how does the face move? The second problem is how does the face look? Because if you try to synthetically reproduce the way the light bounces off a human face and then it reaches your eyes is very, very difficult. There are all sorts of unanswered questions there, scientifically, if you want. So we're getting better at it, but it's going to take a little bit of time. <laughs> Peter, do you think there's, there's um, an oversaturation at the moment of computer animation? And do you think that, <laughs> yeah. run, do you think that runs the risk of... Of sure. maybe tiring the audience. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a risk there because uh, a lot of people sort of looked at two or three good films that made loads of money and they said, well, we're going to make one as well and we're going to make uh, $45 million profit and they haven't. <laughs> I think the public is, is becoming quite discriminating and quite demanding. If the film isn't up to it, they just uh, don't go and see it. And most of the time it isn't so much how well render it is or how well uh, how well it moves it's how good the story is it's the story yeah I that's mean, what it always you, comes back to start from the story yeah. and the other thing i mean in, in the abstract you can talk about animation it doesn't have to be real what it has to do is have an internal consistency in other words 
if you look at a science fiction film like, I don't know, Stargate, let's say, you know the Stargate doesn't exist. But because it makes sense in the context of the story, you accept it. So it has to have internal consistency, the story and the character and the style. If it does that, you will accept it and you'll be, uh, the film will be successful. Otherwise, you will reject it. And I'll give you an example, um, Final Fantasy. Yeah. Have, you, have any of you seen that film? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that looked pretty realistic, but then you looked at those characters and you said, nah, no, nah, there's something wrong it's with that. <laughs> emotionally distancing. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, uh, what you were observing there is the, this corpse thing I was talking about. Yeah, exactly, yeah, you're right. Does that explain why we didn't want to Jar Jar Binks then? Because he was the first animated real-life character, wasn't he? <laughs> Jar Jar Binks was interesting because, uh, uh, to, for me at least, it, it jarred as a character. <laughs> it jar jarred. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, having said that, I know that some of my ex-students have worked on that, on him. But, uh, it, yeah, it just didn't feel right. It, it didn't feel right, but I don't think it was purely Jar Jar's fault. I think it was the uh, the interaction with the, li- the, the live-action characters didn't really... Um, uh, convince me at all. It didn't anchor you. Hugh McGregor looking up at these eye stalks, you know, it just, it, it, it didn't, it didn't you could quite frame. clearly see it wasn't genuinely there, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I mean, at the time it was quite brave to attempt it, but obviously it didn't Oh, it was, it was certainly a stepping stone, wasn't it? It was, I mean, yeah. The, I mean, we, we have uh, different standards as viewers for special effects films than we do for cartoon films. In cartoons, we're prepared to accept the, the abstraction, while in a special effects film, if they're showing you an alien, you want the alien to look realistic. You know, to, you yeah. want him to anchor in the in the picture. You want him to have the same degree of realism as the human character. Yeah, well, so, again, yeah, again for the sake of the story and for the sake of the atmosphere as well. Otherwise, sure, a film yeah, as serious yeah. as say Alien compared to like, I mean, yeah, um, uh, Star Wars. Um, again, there's different types of fans, but. Yeah, you can make more exceptions, more allowances for a film like Star Wars than you could for Alien, because if that alien didn't look, didn't fit in with it, right. then I'm afraid the whole atmosphere is completely ruined, the tension is dissolved. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the trick is, the less you show of the ugly creatures, the better. <laughs> well, it's exactly, trick, yeah. that. Well, it worked for Spielberg with Jaws, didn't it? Because the shark didn't work, yeah, so... Did. So it worked more on a, on a tension basis. Peter, yeah. where, where do you think the future is going for, for computer animation? Okay, let, let me just make a distinction there. Are we talking about fully generated films like, for instance, uh, uh, Monster House, or are we talking about uh, special effects films? Well, let, let, let's explore both avenues. Let, let's start with, uh, with computer animation, as in like your Toy Stories and your Monster Houses okay, and so on. If, and that's my personal opinion. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the industry accepts that. I think uh, we better stick with some abstraction. Because if you look at the, the way they did uh, Polar Express and the way they did Monster House, they used more or less the same technology, although they perfected it a little bit. But what makes Monster House much better is that the characters don't look real. So you accept them as cute little things, and you, you buy the story that, if you want. You, you, you buy them as being uh, consistent with the internal logic of the film. So... As far as I'm concerned, although I'm a computer scientist, I prefer more abstraction and I prefer less realism, if you want. Now, that is true for uh, cartoon films. Now, for special effects, you can't avoid the realism, so you might as well do it as um, realistically as you can. And for that sort of film, you need to actually try to uh, produce the best... uh, rendering the best modeling the best animation and that's what they're trying for they, eventually they would like to be able to replace uh, some characters but not necessarily replace all the characters in the film because what we go and see in the film is we want to relate to other human beings and it would be very difficult for us to relate to a synthetic actor but they want occasionally to be able to introduce a synthetic actor which is a main character in the story <laughs> And they can, they can be better in a lot of cases. Point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they still haven't reached that point yet, but it, it'll get there. It'll get there slowly. It won't happen from one day to the next. But you look at some of the stuff they did um, in The Matrix, and some of it looks pretty... You can buy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course you can, yeah. 
So if, if, if there's any listeners out there, um, any kids out there that, that really want to get into the industry and right. want to go towards animation, right. what, what kind of advice can you give them? Okay, well, the best thing to do really is to, uh, if they're, they're interested in becoming computer animators, what they should do is they should, first of all, talk to their careers teacher at school and then try to uh, go visit the websites of some of the big production companies in London. Uh, or perhaps call them on the phone and ask them, what do you think I should do? What college do you think I should go to? Um, what they should, I mean, if they want to come to our college, what they have to study is a mixture of uh, technical stuff and creative stuff. So we expect our students to have an A-level in art or physics, uh, sorry, in art, and also an A-level in physics or mathematics. Uh, so we, we're looking for people who can use both sides of the brain both the creative side and the logical side. Uh, because it, it is really... Um, animation is a commercial art, and it's very, very technological. You can get away with being an animator without really understanding the technology, but you'll end up doing the lowly jobs as opposed to the top jobs. It, it definitely seems to straddle um, science and art in your is, particular yeah. field. It yeah. Very much like architecture. I mean, you know, in architecture what you have is an artist and a civil engineer. If you ignore one of those two sides of the discipline, either the building will fall down or it'll look <laughs> yeah. that ugly, you know? <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what are the next things you're involved in then? What's the next projects you've got coming up? Personally, you mean? Well, personally or, you know, your students who've gone on to um, greater things, perhaps? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, at the moment, we've got loads of students who are uh, entering competitions and they're usually doing very well. For instance, last year, we had uh, four of our students entered uh, um, the SIGGRAPH competition for computer animation. And that, that's like uh, the Cannes Film Festival uh, for film. And four of them got in out of 700 entries, you know, and um, they only showed about 60, 65, I think, entries altogether. And four of them were from our college. So the, uh, we're encouraging our students to enter competitions, to show stuff on the web, um, and you know, a lot of a lot of them will end up making films, and some of them will end up in the games industry, which is also a very exciting industry, and growing much faster than Hollywood. You're aware of how fast it's growing with the new with the new hardware. Yeah, that, I, I wonder if uh, I mean Damon's our gaming guru. Um, I'm just wondering if yep. Damon's got a question for you on on the game side of things. Okay, yeah, great. Uh, it was it was more to do with I mean most of the, the games these days um, not only have as you say the real time in game graphics but also a lot of the pre rendered uh, scenes that you see um, and Final mm -hmm. Fantasy which you touched on is um, a, yep. a, a very major uh, game in terms of having lots of pre rendered scenes. Um, yep. Do you think that they can uh, either surpass the uh, Final Fantasy? Um, uh, type graphics in terms, or do you think that oh, we're yeah. going to I mean, actually look, see the real-time versions? Sure, yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the latest hardware from uh, ATI or NVIDIA, uh, we can do now stuff we could we could only animate, well, let's say five years ago, uh, to do one frame with the same kind of detail, it would have taken us an hour on a computer. Now, it takes a sixtieth of a second or an eightieth of a second to do the same frame. So you can see how uh, how much the speed has increased and how much our understanding of the hardware has increased to make it run faster. So it, it is pretty terrific what's happening. The, the major bottleneck in games now, it's not so much rendering because you can, you can actually use the graphics card to do all that, and now you have sort of either double graphics cards or quadruple graphics cards. <laughs> yeah. um, the next thing is going to be AI artificial intelligence, and they are currently sort of designing um, AI boards. So there's there'll eventually be a market for AI boards. There are already some physics boards out there, so you can actually do some of the physics, like the collisions or the explosions. You can calculate them on the, on the physics card, which will cost you about 200 quid to buy one of these cards. So I don't know how big the market is going to be, but... Well, that was They're actually going to be the follow-on question. Actually, was the uh, the physics cards themselves? I mean, it's they've only just sort of they've brought about two or three out at the moment, and it's very much yeah. in in the infancy. Do you actually yeah. see that as a a major component that um, uh, is going to be a major factor in PC games in the next couple of years? Um, I mean, well, they're I mean, they're moving yeah. things on quite rapidly anyway. Yeah, I mean, the physics is going to, it was eating into the, the budget of the, the 
time budget, if you want, of the artificial intelligence because they know how much graphic, how much time they're going to spend doing the graphics. Then the rest of the time they have to divide between the artificial intelligence of the game and also the physics. So the physics was taking up quite a lot of time because a lot of these computations are iterative. They have to be done a number of times per frame, if you want. And so they were eating into the budget for AI. So if you release, if you take the pressure off the CPU, if you want, and you let the graphics, the physics card to do the calculations, then you can spend the rest of your time doing more intelligent AI. So you can have more intelligent um, avatars playing in there, if you want. Non-human uh, players playing against the human player. But, you know, a lot of the games now are done on the web, so you're playing against other human beings <laughs> <laughs> yes. as opposed to, to playing against a computer. I mean, what will make or break the physics cards is will the games uh, manufacturers actually use the physics card? Because if they use it, that's fine. I think what they need to do is they, they need to find a common interface where you could run the software on your on your PC, let's say, and if it has a physics card, it uses it. Otherwise, it doesn't, and it it reduces the quality a little bit. But for us, for for the physics card manufacturers to make money, um, games designers and games developers have to actually use the card in their game. It's a little bit of a vicious circle. If people aren't buying it; they're not going to develop for it, and uh, <laughs> That's right, yeah. so on and so forth. But I think it's not one of those technologies that is going to disappear. So. It's, it's not like virtual reality, let's say, which <laughs> 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 has lashed in the pan and disappeared for, you know, from the general public. It's yeah. still used by uh, professionals. So, Peter, just to, to round off, and we'll go back to um, our film-based um, conversations. Okay. Just to finish off, one thing that did surprise me, and one thing at which I'll, I think looks absolutely brilliant when it is used, is CinemaScope for animation. Oh, and right. uh, Monster House was was obviously a CinemaScope um, presentation. Mm-hmm. Do you see the the influx of high definition projectors and monitors and so on coming into the homes now? How do you, how do you see the future of that going? Do you see um, more more animation houses using the the full CinemaScope aspect ratio, or do do you see them sticking to the normal uh, Academy ratio? I, I think more of them would go for the uh, for the letterbox. Uh, style uh, presentation uh, I mean the, the thing you shouldn't forget is that y- you have really very high quality pictures there, there are no imperfections from film so you know it's all digital, digitally produced and when you put it on DVD or a Blu-ray or disc it's going to look really brilliant so uh, I think uh, high definition flatters computer animation and I think you know, the uh, CinemaScope uh, aspect ratio is much better for any kind of film, not just for animation. Yeah, I have to agree there. I mean, if you're going to emulate in any way, shape or form um, real life, no matter yeah. what the, the, the fantastical elements might be, you obviously yeah. want that cinematic ratio, don't you? Yeah. It, it, it looks better, it's more, it's more aesthetic, it's more eye-pleasing. Yeah, uh, I think it's a better ratio. Yeah. More pleasing to the, to the brain. So with the Blu-ray and HD DVD carrying animation, are we actually seeing that um, picture quality, which um, you guys, when, you, when you're, you're doing your animation and so on, is a picture quality um, like for like now? Well, it can be, but a lot depends on... In some films, there are actually computer graphics people are introducing false grain to make it look like film. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of cliche things from the... Uh, from the film industry, the computer graphics people have borrowed, if you want, and they're trying to use. It's an homage, if you want, to the old art. It's like when photography first started, they wanted to emulate paintings. So they were using a lot of the techniques used in paintings and a lot of the poses. (laughs) But the the art will develop. I mean, it's a very, very young art. I mean, I remember when I was, uh, when I first started as uh, an undergraduate student, there, there wasn't any computer animation. You know, there were just about a bit of graphics. You know, and I remember getting pretty excited about it at the time. But you know, it's going to grow. It's going to it's going to acquire its own style. It's going to acquire its own techniques. So, what are the things that have impressed you most that you've seen, particularly in movies? What What are the effects, the the CG that you've seen, which has really blown you away, and you've wanted to, you know, you know, try and capture yourself with your own particular um, art? 
It's actually quite hard to answer this question because a lot of the time when I watch a film, I tend to isolate the special effects and it spoils the atmosphere <laughs> for me. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how they did this bit. <laughs> so you can't switch off then, though? <laughs> a lot of the time I can't, yeah. Uh, I suppose it's a little bit like a musician listening to somebody else's CD. You're trying to figure out how they did this lick or that, or that rhythm or that break. Oh, so in, in a way, it's failing then for you, isn't it? Because you, you can you can sit back and analyse it. You can't really <laughs> cut yourself yeah, away you know, from I, I, you know the technicalities I, behind it. At heart, everybody's a kid. You know, you, you, uh, eventually you want to switch off and say, "Oh yeah, that's just real entertainment." You know. <laughs> I was going to go on one further from Chris and say if, if there's nothing in particular that sort of you see on the screen that's blown you away in the uh, in the movies, is there anything in particular that you've seen and gone, oh my God, that was awful? <laughs> you want me to put my foot in it, yeah? Yeah, go on. <laughs> Actually, some of the things I like, in, especially in computer animated films, is I prefer for the, the film to look painterly rather than to be shiny. So sometimes I'm actually I'm, I'm actually switched off by what uh, Pixar is doing, because a lot All of the, right. the time Pixar is trying to be ultra realistic, and you think, well, you know, this is only entertainment. You know, why are you trying to to cast I don't know 150 rays to to, to show me how a speck of light is reflected off? Um, <laughs> that's a that's <laughs> a good point. That. They I do mean, strive for ultra-realism and yet try to keep a cartoony feel to it as well. That's right, yeah. It's very hard. The I mean, cake and eat it, you know. Th there was an example of that in, um, in Cars, I think, where they were trying to actually simulate the lighting around the uh, race course. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you thought, well, who's going to count how many reflections of lights you see on the surface of the car? You know, After a while, if the car is zooming quite quickly, you just get a fleeting uh, impression. And what a lot of... Uh, that especially happens in America. The Americans are in love with technology as opposed to the art, if you want. So it's, it's overkill, it's isn't it? The artistry that makes it, it's not the technology that makes it. <laughs> you need the technology. Everything has to be there in place. But it's the it's the input of the artist or the creative person that makes it happen. And, you know, you think, well, does it matter if there are 25 lights or 23? <laughs> See, Walt Disney wouldn't have done it, would he? Yeah, exactly, yeah. If, if um, with the way the industry's moving and, and you're saying that um, it's not just the technology, it's the person who's inputting into the computer and so on, I take it there's still a, a, a huge market there for... Um, real-time animators, people who know how how things are supposed to move. What do you mean by real-time animators? Puppet animators? Yeah, pe people that used to used to do the the old stop motion. Talking about the cell animators that used to work for Disney. That kind of thing. People people who know how things are supposed to move and and, and yeah, I mean the most flow. important thing in animation is being able to observe motion and being able to reproduce it. You know, the word animation comes from Latin, which means anima. So what you're doing is you're giving soul. To the drawing, that's mm. what to animate means. Yeah. And so you take a still drawing and you make it alive by giving it soul, and that's what the artist brings to the party, if you want. It, it makes it exciting by taking something which shouldn't move and it does move. So yeah, the the, the uh, you need that kind of talent. Uh, however, to apply it nowadays, you have to also have a technological bend to your personality. Otherwise, you will be throw your hands up and say, well, I can't use the mouse, you know, or I can't move, <laughs> use the pointer kind of thing. So you need to be able to understand both. But this is fundamental for animation, is being able to observe motion. I mean, if you look at the guys, uh, the guys at Pixar or the guys at uh, Digital Domain, they go to the zoo and observe animals to see how they move, they take pictures of them. I, I, was, uh, I, I knew some of the guys who did um, the waves for Perfect Storm. Oh. And the amount of time they spend filming the <laughs> sea and trying to understand it, because people who are not very scientific don't realize how little we know about the world. I mean, if you look at sea waves, for instance, okay, so you, there is a theory of how waves would move, but then there is no mathematical theory as to how the froth moves on top of the wave. There, there's no equations to simulate. We're leaping into the, uh, the chaos theory here, aren't we? <laughs> That's right. 
like uh, so they they had to invent new ways of doing that you know and they, you do that by trial and error most of the time see the mm. animation and in general special effects is the if it looks right it is right it so it's doesn't have to be scientific. While in scientific simulation, it has to be right in, well, it's only right if it's accurate, if you want. But in animation, if it looks right, it's right. Peter, have you ever tinkered about with plasticine at all? I haven't personally. Uh, the first film I did was with matchsticks, not plasticine. Because <laughs> <laughs> of it, Nick Park ventures into CG That's as well right, now, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah it's a lovely animation, lovely work. Well, Peter, thank you very much. We could have spoken all night on, on this okay. subject. And thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak to us. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie. Thanks. This is the AV Podcast. And that's all we have time for for this week's software edition of the AV Podcast. If you'd like to give us feedback, then you can leave a post in the podcast forum at avforums.com or you can send us an email at podcast at avforums.com or why not leave us a voice message on 0208 123 9587. And don't forget you can also download this week's edition of the Hardware Podcast and our all-new gaming podcast presented by Ian Collin. So that's all for now. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. Stay subscribed and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Player Review Team were Chris McAnini, Cass Harlow, Simon Crust and Seth Gecko. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.